0: Let's hear our reading from the Gospel of Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? They replied, we are able And Jesus said to them The cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism which I am baptised you will be baptised but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognise as their rulers, lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. And oh, I missed one out. Come on. No, there's another one. For the word of God among us. We do this every week. For the word of God among us. For the word of within us. There's, only, there's three though, right? For the word of God in scripture. For the word of God among us. For the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. (laughs) What a lot we are. This is the fourth time in Mark's gospel that Jesus talks about his own suffering and death. All in the last chapter a bit chapter and a half. It's the second time he deals with the issue of greatness. That was just a handful of verses before. And in that, those verses he says, greatness is nothing like you expect it to be, it's like a child. He brings a child in. And still, this mob know better. They're still so stuck in what they know that even all these times that Jesus has said it, even the illustrations that he's brought in with the children, they already know and it's hard to shift them. This is a terrible indictment on us as human beings, isn't it? The How stuck we get in a certainty. How wedded we are to a certain way of thinking and doing things. I mean, think about the last time you made a New Year's resolution. How determined you were to keep it. And how by the middle of January it was looking shaky and by February you've forgotten all about it. We're so wedded to certain things, it's so hard for us to change. Think about the issue of climate change, which is so central to us at the moment. How hard it is for some people to believe that what we've done to the earth has damaged it and ourselves. For some people, it's become an article of faith that the science is wrong and that somehow this is a conspiracy. It is so hard for us to change. And here these guys are, four times and still stuck in how we organise greatness. Jesus had said before the last will be first and the first will be last, But here he goes even further. Whoever wishes to be great among you must become a servant. And whoever wishes to be first must be a slave of all. This um, way of talking, that servant, slave, kind of one phrase echoing another, it's a very distinctive Jewish way of writing and talking. Uh, The Psalms are full of it where a phrase is said and then a phrase somewhat similar that kind of amplifies it is repeated. It's as if they're sort of underlining or putting it in bold. But is this Jesus just being hyperbolic? Because that's a traditional Jewish way of talking too. When Jesus says in another place, um, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, that's hyperbole. Isn't it? He's trying to make an extraordinary claim about how difficult it is to live pure. And while some people have probably tried to take that literally, most sensible people recognise, and people of Jesus' day would have recognised hyperbole and the need for it. Last week, was it last week or the week before, we had the camel going through the eye of a needle. Wonderful metaphors for trying to understand the things Jesus is talking about. But I think he's doing more than being hyperbolic here. I think Jesus is actually questioning the whole notion of what greatness and firstness and lastness, what it all means. Because when you think about it, the logic doesn't really work. Because if the last need to become first, well then the people who were first are now last, which means the people who are last are now first, so they need to become last. And the people who are last will be first, and if they're first, they need to become last. Did you ever play that game with children where you put your hand there, they put their hand there, then you put your hand on top, and then you pull out the bottom one. It takes a little while for some kids to get the hang of it because they just pull out random hands. But you're supposed to pull out that one and then put it on top. And then, right? You remember that? Yeah, you know it, right? Go go home and play it with someone old. Maybe at morning tea. I'm not sure we're allowed to do these things, but Look, like, who's on? Who's first? Well, it just constantly changes. It just keeps moving. It's like fly, geese flying in formation. They're constantly changing. It's I think one of the things Jesus might be saying here is, if you think about this, this is nuts, isn't it? Well, are you first? Okay, well, you need to be last. Well, that means I was last, now that I'm first, so that means I need to be last. It's just a cycle. And if I need to be your servant, well then, don't you need to be my servant, and then I'm serving you and you're serving me? When you think about it, it all just seems crazy. And anyway, how is it possible to be the slave of everyone? I think the last verse we have in this text amplifies this idea that this is all nuts and Jesus is critiquing it to the point of absurdity. Because he says at the end, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now this is the only time this word appears in the New Testament uh, in this form. It appears in, in other forms uh, in some of the writings of Paul and it appears in this exact same story in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's, it's only this once that we hear it in this way. And the word always means, and this is um, clear in the writings of Paul and in Hebrews where it also appears, the word always means the buying back of an enslaved person give them their freedom. That's how it was used all the way through the ancient world and there's no disputing that this is the meaning of the word. So why does Jesus use this particular word at this moment when it appears nowhere else in what he says to anyone anywhere? Because I think he's critiquing and dismantling the whole idea of who's first and who's last, who's great and who's not, who are the slaves and who are the... The, the, the slave owners, who are the masters and who are the servants. He's saying that my life is about buying back the slaves, dismantling the whole crazy structure. He is freeing the slaves. No one, it turns out, is a slave to anyone else because all of it is just craziness. It's all built on a lie. It's all built on the idea that some of us are worth more than others or some of us are slightly more important than others or some of us are better educated and therefore or some of us come from better families and therefore or some of us are of a more important gender and therefore or all the things that we've done. What would it look like if you just abandoned that system completely? Well, the United Church is having a go at this. Now, in church circles, the United Church, 40-odd years old, barely started. But when we did start, and much of this coming out of the historical moment that we were in, remember the end of the Second World War, the forming of the United Nations, the need to find a better way of doing things than killing each other. Now, the United Nations for good and for ill, but it began out of this hope. And from that came the movement of the, or the renewal of the ecumenical movement. How would it be if churches were really seriously working together? And out of that came the impetus of the Uniting Church. So when the Uniting Church started, we, we did two in, interesting things. One of them was we said, we're going to build interrelated councils And not one council is going to be the boss of any of the other councils. And we have the council of the congregation, us. We have the council of the presbytery. We're members of the Wimala Presbytery these days, which is essentially the northern part of South Australia. In fact, our boundary is um, the parade here, where there's the, the council of the synod, which is the statewide body, and then the council of the assembly, which is the national body and each of those councils has to pay attention to all the others it's a recipe for craziness lots of people tell me i just can't stand it that all we do is talk in the united church and we do we talk a lot and there are lots of other ways of being a church there are hierarchical and monarchical models uh, and the Catholic and the Anglican systems are like that. They've come from a different era of time when kings and princes were responsible for how things were done, and they are still dealing with those models with all the strengths and weaknesses of them. But we've got this one. We have to talk. We have to listen to each other. And frankly, there's lots of people in the church I don't really want to listen to. I think I already know what they've got to say, and I don't want to hear. That's not the church I'm a part of. If I don't want to do that, then there's lots of other churches I can join. You can join independent churches where the bloke out the front, and it's pretty much always a bloke, knows what God wants and tells you. And you just do it or don't. And if you don't like it, you leave and start your own. Now, that's got a lot of advantages if you happen to be the bloke out the front. But beyond that, it's a real problem. So we don't do that. We've tried to do something different. And we use a consensus decision-making model where we have to listen to everybody before we come to a conclusion. And it's hard work. And it's not perfect and we don't do it always well and, and, and all of those sorts of things. But the reason that it was established the way it is and the reason we try and deal with it the way it is is, I think, in response to a text like this, that we need to pay serious attention to Jesus' idea that there isn't a hierarchy, That there isn't someone who knows and the rest of us who are waiting to be told. That we've got to somehow discern it all together. But I think it's even more radical than that and we see this in the life of St Francis. St Francis of Assisi uh, who was the exemplar in the Christian faith of someone who paid so much attention to the essence of the earth that he began to treat the elements as if They were his relations. He talked about brother sun and sister moon, sister water, brother wind and air. He experienced a deep universal interconnectedness of things. So for Francis and the way he lived, it seems these weren't sort of metaphorical ideas, but genuine, real things. He talked with animals As if they existed as independent, alive entities infused with God. That it's even deeper than just us working in the Uniting Church and trying to do the best we can to work together and to avoid hierarchy and control. But it's even deeper than that. We have to do that with all of creation. Otherwise, we're not making any sense of the world, is how Francis saw it. And he drew that from all kinds of things. One of them from the words of St. Paul, who said in, in Romans, Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen because they are understood through the things God has made. They've been clearly seen because they've been understood through the things God has made. That's why I love these Piet Modrian paintings, because they make me pay attention to the flowers that I've walked past time and time again. The early Celtic saints uh, would say things, and and it's encapsulated in the words of St. Columbanus, if you want to know the Creator, come and know his creatures. So when we finally send our Prime Minister to the Glasgow summit in two weeks' time, and when he takes, hopefully, a coherent policy, which is still secret to us and the National Party, it seems, um, to that climate summit... As a person of faith, his job is not to take an economic plan. Of course, that's a part of it. But his job and on uh, the responsibility he takes from all of us is to take a plan that helps us understand what it means to deeply and seriously live in a world that is infused with God to the point where the animals are our brothers and sisters, where the elements are our sisters and brothers, if St Francis can be taken seriously. What if it's more than just hoping that we don't choke to death as individual human beings? What if it's that we want to see the world look like the way God imagines it and dreams of it being for all of us? And by all of us, I mean every living creature and every inanimate part of creation. It's a lot more than just, well, whose levers first now will be last and whoever's last will be. It's much, much beyond that. And if Jesus were here and he was invited to the climate summit or St Francis, I think they would invite us to a much bigger story enveloped in a world filled with the energy and love of God. So they're the things we'll pray about in a moment when we come to that part of our service. So be it.